as a pastor's shepherd, hearing you all sing in worship fills me with joy. I can only imagine how much your sweet incense of your worship pleases God. And he's worthy, right? Amen. And that's the name of this series, right? Magnifying the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is doing. So join with me as we continue our journey uh, through the book of John. That's John chapter 13. And we're making great progress. We actually will finish the book of John on our last Sunday in August. Okay? So the end is near. We're getting there. To start off with, um, I want us to take a, do a little activity together um, about mineralogy. You're like, what? What do minerals have to do with things? So I got the first slide, please. So many of you remember, or may remember that um, earlier this year, we took a trip, and one of the places we stopped at was Crater Diamond State Park, where we were all really hunting for those objects around that coin, looking for diamonds. And the kids, if they found a diamond, they were going to buy a few Lego sets with some of it, and then the rest, they were going to build the church in Beeson. But <laughs> we never found any diamonds, but we found lots of different rocks and minerals, um, and to do that required some skills, right? And so I want to give you a little test uh, to see how much you realize and how much you know about minerals. And there's a point to this. So the next slide. What mineral is this? B, amethyst. Very good. They're going to get harder, okay? Next one. What is this one? B, pyrite. Very good. What mineral is this? C, turquoise. You're doing great. What is this one? A little difference of opinion on this one. It is C, fluorite. Okay, very good. Okay, what is this one? <laughs> You're all over the place. This one is D, nickel. Yeah. Good job, CL. Keep going. <laughs> okay, what is this one? It is D, tourmaline. Okay, next one. <laughs> this one is C, sodalite. And then number eight, what is this one? It is C, limonite. So what did you have to do to determine these, right? You guess, right? Hopefully, you know, each of these have some distinguishing characteristics, right? Their crystal shape, their color, their hardness, luster, specific gravity, things like that, right? You use all these things to come together to make an educated guess about what it is. Similarly, as we're embarking here in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and the last few hours before he gets arrested and goes to get crucified, he has this moment in time in these four chapters where he invests in his disciples. This is all one long discourse as he is teaching them the last final hours. And he's teaching them something very specific. He's teaching them how to be a disciple. So the next slide, please. So we're going to start a little mini-series that John has given us, Eight Distinctive Marks of a Disciple. 
And we're going to go over the first two today in chapter 13. And each chapter, as you'll see, will have two marks of discipleship that we're going to be investigating. So you've all heard of a dinner in a movie, right? We like to go to a, sit in a movie and have the dinner brought to us and watch it. Well, this is dinner and discipleship, okay? They're in the upper room, the Last Supper. Jesus is going to invest in his disciples. Uh, and a disciple is what? A disciple is somebody who follows a teacher. So if I just say the word disciple, that's not enough. I have to have that prepositional phrase, disciple in Jesus Christ. And that's who we are. We are disciples in Jesus And that's discipleship, as we said at the beginning of our time together this evening, is the process where we grow and become more like Jesus. And so today we're going to dive in and look at these first two marks. So we're going to be looking at how to be a servant and how to love. Now, as we, I'm going to read the passage here together with you. And as we do that, I remember that this is Passover meal. Okay, this is Jesus' final Passover here on earth. Um, There's some fun facts about Passover in your worship guide uh, for you to look at as well. They're coming here to this last meal. city is buzzing with activity. Tons of people from all around the world are there. Jews have come to the temple. If you look at the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that already before this, the Jewish leaders have already conspired and made the decision, we're going to go kill Jesus. Okay, the decision has been made. And they've already approached Jesus Iscariot and have already agreed that Jesus said, yes, I will do that for 30 pieces of silver. Those two decisions have already been made. And and then we enter this chapter 13. So let me read it with you. This is what God's word says. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. You like all those commas in those first sentences, right? John has a way with himself, right? He laid aside his outer garment after he rose from supper, tied a towel around his waist, verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do know them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his 
heal against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. This is John. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, "Buy Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify, glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. May God bless the reading of his word. So the first mark of a discipleship we see in this passage is serving one another. So when I say the phrase selfless service, what do you think of? All the Aggies out there, do you think of it? That's one of the core values of A&M, right? The Army is one of the core values of the Army as well. It's also one of the core values of discipleship, right? Selfless service. It was one of our marks. And Jesus gives us a wonderful example with his foot washing. Now, we're not going to say we're going to do foot, feet washing in this church, okay? That's not where we're headed. But Jesus gives us this example. And so why is he doing this? Well, if you're walking on the roads in Palestine at that time, they're not paved, right? They're dusty, they're dirty, there's droppings from animals all over the ground. And so your feet get rather dirty, as you can imagine. Even if you're wearing sandals, things get caked between your toes and all that. And when you eat at dinner in Palestine, you, you lean against on the table. You don't sit in chairs. You lean down against soft cushions at a table, and your feet are exposed to everybody else, right? So you're sitting there trying to eat, and you smell somebody's smelly feet with sheep dung stuck on it, right, and dirt. Not very appetizing, right? So what would normally be done is somebody would come and clean your feet before you sat down. It helps relax the guests, makes everything pleasant, refreshing them, and so forth. But what we have here, you remember we have, Jesus has come into town on a borrowed donkey. 
They have borrowed this upper room. They don't own it. They have ordered the meal already. There's nobody around to wash the feet. Did the disciples forget (laughs) to have somebody come do that? Or did Jesus plan this all along? We don't know. We just know that Jesus takes this opportunity as a master teacher to teach them and us something. He takes on this menial, menial task of a slave. See, a slave was recognized instantly by having a towel wrapped around himself. And this was the lowest job anybody could ever do, is washing somebody's feet. And it was, it was set aside only for the slaves to do. And it was a mark of a slave. A rabbi would definitely not do it for his disciples. Disciples would not do it for the rabbi or for each other. It would only be for a slave. And you can imagine possibly what's going through their mind. I mean, why is Jesus doing this? I mean, if it was me, I wouldn't have time to do it. I know I'm going to be crucified in a couple hours. The last thing I'm going to do is sit down and wash somebody's feet, right? I'm going to prepare myself for my mission. But that's not what Jesus does. You see in verse 13, verses one through, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, several times it says, Jesus knew, Jesus knowing. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knows what's coming. He knows Gethsemane is coming. He knows the arrest. He knows Calvary is coming. He knows all the pain and suffering he's about to endure. But yet he stops, takes on the task of a menial slave, and washes disciples' feet. He serves them. So he lays aside his garment wraps himself with a towel and washes their feet. Now think about it. Whose feet are he wash- is he washing? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there at creation, King, King, Lord of Lords, washing their feet, washing the feet of these fishermen, washing the feet of Judas. He knew he would betray him, had already made the decision, but yet he's going to wash his feet. He's going to wash the feet of Peter, knowing that Peter will deny him three times. He's going to wash the feet of Thomas, who know he will doubt him. He still washes their feet, all 12 of them. Can you imagine the silence in the room until it got to Peter, right? Peter always has to jump up and say something, right? We love Peter because Peter is us, right? He washed their feet. Why? Modeling service, right? His attitude and his actions are in direct contrast to what was the cultural norm and really the norm of our flesh. Mark 9, 35, he had already said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What you don't know from this passage, if you went back to the synoptics and look at Luke 22, you see right before this, the 12 disciples had argued about who would be the greatest in heaven once again. They've done it before, right? And they're arguing again. Luke 22, in this meal. And Jesus says, no. You have to serve one another. You have to be last. And then he follows up with this object lesson of washing their feet. How do you think the disciples felt after arguing about who would be the greatest, and then Jesus does this? Hmm. Talk about feeling guilty, right? About what you have done, about your thought process. And they forgot what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28. Even as some man came not to serve, but to serve. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And how? To ransom his life. We just sang about it, right? He ransoms his life for us. 
His death, his burial, his resurrection. You look at verse 10 and following, Jesus has already used water as a double meaning throughout John, right? We've seen him, you talk about the living water, about baptism, about being born again in water. He's always had this spiritual connotation with water. Yes, we're talking about physical water, washing the feet and bathing, but it has a spiritual meaning. So again, Jesus' master teachers using something people know about, water, wash, feet washing, bathing, but he has a spiritual definition for it. And he says, Peter says, you have to wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, if you've already been bathed, if you've already been cleansed spiritually, then you don't need to be cleansed spiritually once again, right? You don't have to quote, accept Jesus the Lord and Savior over and over again, right? Once you do it, you're done. Salvation is a one-time act, okay? But what about this foot washing? Jesus says, well, you do have to wash off filth that accumulates through the day. Same thing happens with us, right? I am saved in Jesus Christ, but I sin still, right? In my flesh. I still get angry. I still get irritated sometimes at people. And I have to what? Repent of that, right? That's my foot washing. I have to come to Jesus and repent of that sin. I don't need a full bath. I've already been cleansed spiritually, right? I have salvation. But I have to come before him and say, I'm sorry for getting angry. I'm getting irritated with somebody. I have to ask him for what? Forgiveness. All this is going on, right, in this Last Supper. And Jesus is saying, I want you to serve one another just as I am serving you. This servant mindset is in direct contrast to our heart attitude and our flesh, right? Selflessness runs counter to human nature. It's always easier to be selfish rather than selfless. You never have to train a baby how to be selfish, right? They always grab something mine, right? You have to teach what? A baby to share and to be selfless, right? It's in our human nature. It started back in Genesis chapter 3, right? When Satan said to Eve, and to talk to Adam and Eve, you, go, you want this fruit, right, for yourself. You want to have the same knowledge as God. Be selfish. Grab it. Have the knowledge of good and evil. And so it happened, right? And so now in our human nature, we have selfishness, which is counter to serving. How many times a day are we encouraged to think about just ourselves? Think about the ads that we see. Just do it. Why wait? Obey your thirst. No boundaries. Your way right away. All these ads are selfish, right? They promote instant gratification. There was an article in Wired Magazine that said Facebook propaganda makes selfishness contagious, right? Social media is just an echo chamber of selfishness in general, right? Promoting what you're doing, where you're at, you know, all your opinions. It's an echo chamber of selfishness in general. Yes, it can be good for good things. Don't get me wrong. But why and share what you see out there in the world is selfishness. What you see in social media, news, television, magazine, TV shows, they promote what? Selfishness, not serving one another. But if you spend time in God's word, with godly friendships and prayer and so forth, you foster what? 
selflessness in serving. So as his followers, as his disciples of Jesus, as believers, we are to emulate what Jesus did. The model that. To serve, we have to have lowliness of heart and mind. Humility. One of my favorite pastors, Adrian Rogers, once said, real humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself, period. That's humility. You know what just Jesus modeled? Humility. The king of the universe became a slave to wash feet of people. Humility. The God of the world became incarnate to die for us. Humility and service. That's where we get the word deaconos for deacon, to serve. And our deacons here serve, and they serve well, and we're thankful for them. They deke well, they serve well. To be selfless, to serve, combines spiritual characteristics of humility, meekness, compassion, benevolence, empathy, sympathy, gentleness, goodness, and generosity. Kind of sounds like the fruit of the spirit, right? Imagine that. Contrast that with Judas. He's a thief. He's full of greed. He's selfish. So what does serving one another look like? If you, you can flip through scripture and find countless examples of what that looks like, right? Here's just a few. Having other focused conversations. If all your conversations with somebody is just about yourself or things you're doing, you may be a little selfish, right? Have other focused conversations. Encourage one another. Ask how they're doing. Big one here. Tells us in Colossians 3, forgive one another. If we are to serve one another, we will forgive them. Colossians 3 tells us what? We are to forgive one another because what? Christ first forgave us. Spiritual gifts, 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4 says we are to use our spiritual gifts to edify and serve one another. That's what they're for. They're not supposed to puff up us individually. They are uniquely designed by God to serve the body, to edify, to encourage, to serve one another. Every spiritual gift. Galatians 6.2, bearing one another's burdens. That's how you serve. I can't assume responsibility for someone else's behavior, but I can come alongside them and bear their burdens. We can come alongside a struggling brother and sister and help them shoulder the weight of a trial or temptation that threatens to pull them under. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens. It's part of service we're supposed to do as one another. Another is provision. Acts chapter 2, the early church, verses 44 through 45, you see the first church coming together, and what do they do? They're sharing provisions with one another so that no one has need. We provide for one another as a church family. That's how we serve. Yeah, when my wife had, was on breast cancer medication and couldn't feed Seth, we had women from all around the United States who would mail in dry ice cooled breast milk so she could feed Seth. That's serving, the body coming along and serving. Alan has many times offered anybody need to use his truck, can do that. That's service, serving the body. 
And then there's several actions, right, to serve. Obviously, serving in the church, whether you're a volunteer or paid staff, a deacon, whatever the case may be, you are serving the body. Maybe God is calling one of you to a service position. Babysitting for a couple, they're giving them a night out. Serving the body so they can strengthen their marriage. Preparing a meal for a family struck by illness. Or just calling somebody and say, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? Can I encourage you? Texting them. That's serving the body. So what does, what's required if I want to serve someone in this church? What, what's required? Well, Jesus gives us this perfect example. First of all, serving requires our awareness. Jesus noticed the need, right? Their feet were not washed yet. You've got to be, to be blunt, we have to start be over ourselves to see the need around us, right? Look around you in the church. Who needs something? Because not everybody will ask, right? I'm the least of those. I would never, I have a hard time asking for help, right? Some of you know that. My wife definitely knows that, okay? So you may ask, and no, I don't need any help right now. Just let you know, okay. Serving requires awareness. It also requires our time. Hmm. Jesus only had a few hours left on this earth. And what does he do? He spends time with the disciples to meet a need. Yes, it will be always, will always be inconvenient. But this I've learned as a 55-year-old. God will always redeem the time if you invest in it. It will be inconvenient. I will tell you that now. Yes, but take the time to serve someone. It will require us to be uncomfortable. Jesus is washing smelly, dirty feet. That's uncomfortable, right? Think about it. It requires us to humble ourselves. Jesus did that with spades, right? Ultimately, it requires us to what? To love. To serve requires love. And that's the next mark of our distinction that we're going to look at. Loving one another. Our second mark. Because see, this is what fuels it. In 1984, Tina Turner came out with a song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Right? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love but a sweet old-fashioned notion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Church, love has everything to do with it. That's what fuels service. It's the motivation. Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. If I, don't, if I serve without motivation of love, 1 Corinthians 13 just says my actions are a noisy gong or a clanking cymbal. It's meaningless. It's just going through the motions. It needs to be undergirded by love. And we see this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By the way, this passage is repeated in 1 John chapter 4, written by who? By John again, right? He repeats it two more times, this new commandment. This is the last commandment Jesus gives before his crucifixion. 
One another, by the way, is us, believers, our body. So let's review what happens before this passage, because I think it's quite interesting. If you put your place there at dinner, put your place in John, I think you're going to see something interesting. So starting all the way back up to verse 35, no, 25. So John is leaning against Jesus, okay? Uh, remember, they're reclining around the table. He's sitting next to him. He's just leaning against Jesus. Peter has already motioned him. Ask him who he's talking about. So John whispers, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus tells him, it's going to be whom I dip this bread in and give it to. By the way, that practice of dipping the bread in the oil and the giving it to somebody was a thing of honor. Even now, Jesus is honoring Judas, who he knows is going to betray him. And so, he does that. And Jesus tells him in verse 27, go do what you're going to do quickly. Things are set in motion now. And he says in verse 31, now is the son a man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So think about John. He's leaning there against Jesus. At the very moment, he just found out that Judas is, is the betrayer, is going to betray Jesus. And his world is rocked. Judas, he's been with us for three years. All this, he's been holding the money back for us for three years, and he's going to betray you? And then he sees Judas get up and start leaving without a word. And then Jesus says, now, now is the time that I'm glorified. How can that be? Glorify, betrayal, now is the time to be glorified? Judas is walking out betraying you? (laughs) He's a fool of emotions, right? And then Jesus says these words in verse 33. He says, little children. Now that phrase, little children, is only used in two places. Here in this chapter and in 1 John. And it's a term of affection for a follower, an offspring of a teacher. Jesus is trying to comfort us, little children. John's full of emotions. What is going on? What do you mean you're not going to be with us much longer? What do you mean that he's the betrayer? Why is now the time you're going to be glorified in the midst of all this? And Jesus is trying to call and say, little children. Little children, I'm going where you cannot come. I'm leaving you. Up to now, everyone knows you're my disciple because you followed me around Judea and Galilee. That's how they knew he was a disciple of Jesus. But now I'm not going to be here anymore. So I'm going to leave you this commandment, which will mark you as my disciple. And that new commandment is to love one another. Then people will know you're my disciple. So how does Jesus love? If he wants us to love, how does he do that? As we look through scripture, we could spend hours looking through that, right? But just in a nutshell, he loves unconditionally, sacrificially, with forgiveness, and eternally. It's a holy love, right? Unconditionally, sacrificially, with forgiveness, and eternally. His love is steadfast. And you see that at the end of verse 1. Did you catch that phrase? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love was steadfast. Out of his infinite riches, Jesus gives and gives again. His love is never ending. 
Praise God. It reminds us of what? Romans 8, 38 through 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the steadfast love Jesus is talking about. And of course, the culmination of God's perfect love is the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. No one has greater love than he lays down his life, Scripture tells us. That's what Jesus has done. He has given us that example. Church, you are to lay down your life for one another. Your love is supposed to be sacrificial, unconditional, with forgiveness. So how can we do that? We can't (laughs) on our own, right? Requires the Holy Spirit. And God knows that. Don't turn there, just listen. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, just a few voices. They'll talk about a few verses. They'll talk about what love is to God. You'll be familiar with the passage. Just listen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. How are you doing in loving? I fall short. How about you? See, love in this world from their flesh is selfish, egotistical, unforgiving, and insincere. That's not 1 Corinthians 13 love that God wants us to have. But our ability to love like this can only happen not from ourselves, but from the Holy Spirit working through us. So the Holy Spirit working through us helps us to do that. The Holy Spirit shows us that unconditional, forgiving, sacrificial love. It allows us to love one another, our family, co-workers, even our enemies. We are to love. But you've got to listen to the Holy Spirit, right? Abide in God's word in order for that love to germinate and grow. Evidence of discipleship we see in verse 35. By this, this love, you loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. Notice what he said. He didn't say people will know you're my disciples if you have a fish or a goose bumper sticker on your car. If you wear a Christian t-shirt or WWJD bracelet. If you listen to Christian music and podcast. If you have a Hebrew or Greek tattoo on or follow Toby Mac, Lauren Daigle, or Franklin Graham on social media. Those things do not mean you're a Christian or a disciple of Jesus Christ. Only one thing is the mark, he says. It's our love for one another. Those other things may be good and fruitful, 
in our lives, but loving one another is what Jesus says is what's important. That's what distinguishes us. The proof and the sign that we are disciples is that we love one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look around the room, each other. Some of you are short, some are tall, some have tattoos, some don't, some have hair, some don't. Some have a little more melanin than I do, some don't. Some are introverts, some are extroverts. Some of you are easy to relate to and some are not. Some of you are very ordered and some of you are very organic. (laughs) Guess which one I am and which one Monica is. And God brought us together, amen? Some of you love guac and some of you don't, like me. (laughs) The point is what? The heterogeneous assembly of all these sinners in need of grace are to love one another. That's what we're commanded to do. And you know, in giving this command, Jesus did something the world has never seen before. He created a group identified by one thing and one thing only, love. Not a whole list of criteria or adjectives, just one thing. See, a watching world will be persuaded not when our values are promoted, but when they are incarnated. When you incarnate the love of Jesus Christ, that's what the world notices. That's they notice that you're different. And they should, right? But ficacious virtue of love distinguishes the Christian and should because that's what Jesus commanded. Church, love one another. Church, serve one another. So the big idea is disciples of Jesus, we are called to serve and love one another. So this world is not one another focused, right? Have that last slide up, please. A couple of magazine articles. Millennials get all the bad press, right? That's the me, 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 me generation, right? Very selfish, not serving. But the generation before them, Gen X, was just as bad, right? Make your own rules. It was all about self and doing what you wanted to do. And the generation after them, the Zoomers or Gen Z, it's all about self-awareness and about having my me time and so forth. Again, it's all focused on self. That's not what God's word says. There's a Greek word for that, hogwash, okay? <laughs> See, our identity is not in ourselves. My identity is not in, put your name there. It is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's not if you are, use Apple or Android, not whether you wear Walmart, Time and True, or something from Prada, not if you wear, drive a Camry or a Rolls Royce, if your net worth is a thousand or a billion, or if you're from the US or somewhere else. That's not what your identity is. Your identity is in Christ alone. And as the worship team comes up, our, that. As if we're in Christ, we should have these distinguishing marks. So my question is, do you bear those marks of serving one another and loving one another? Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, came to, to serve us and to cover us with his love. And to model for us service and love. But we cannot do this, church, if we don't sacrifice self. Remember what John the Baptist said in John 3.30. I must decrease, he must increase. 
We have to lay at the altar self in order to love and serve one another. So I have some questions for you. Do we need to get over ourselves tonight? Do you need to sacrifice self and repent of a self-centered life? After all, it's the American way. Do you need to sacrifice self and make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life? Do you need to go to someone in this room tonight and ask for forgiveness for not loving them? Do you need to repent from not serving someone in this church or not serving the church when God told you to? The altar's going to be open if you need to come and pray. Ultimate act of humility to come to this altar and sacrifice self to God and repent. Back room will also be open if you need prayer or you can stay at your seat. But this is our time to do business with God. For this church to be the church and it needs to be of Jesus Christ, we've got to love one another and serve one another. To do that, we have to get over ourselves. Let me pray. Father, I pray you make us more like Jesus. If more of you means less of us, take everything. Yes, all of you is all we need. We don't need ourselves. Amen.